This is the fourth Sunday after Pentecost. We're firmly in the green season, continuing uh, really this teaching season of the church year. I always say it's about discipleship, and it is, but as you see from Vicki Black's blurb that we have in the bulletin, it's about a number of other things. And I thought uh, there'll be more than one in this sermon, but a little teaching moment that might be of interest, something at least to amaze your friends. We sang a portion of Psalm 119 this morning, and it's in the bulletin, of course, with the musical accompaniment. But if you take your prayer book out and turn to page 772, I'm going to give you a little lesson about Psalm 119. Page 772. We sang this morning verses 105 through 112. And you'll see there's a heading. None. And then the little Latin uh, description which comes from the old Latin translation. So people, uh, those who are of that bent say, oh yes, I remember. Yeah, Lucerna Pettibus Meis, that's the one. Nun is a character in the Hebrew alphabet. And Psalm 119 is an acrostic. And what that means is that verses 105 through 112 all begin with the letter Nun. And then the next section begin with that Hebrew letter. And then 121 is Ayin. It's, they all believe, begin with that. So it's an acrostic. It's the longest psalm in the, in the uh, Psalter. There are other acrostics, I believe, but I can't remember which ones there are now. But 119 is the most famous one. So you can amaze your friends with that little tidbit of information. We are on a three-year lectionary, which means that the readings that I'm going to preach on today won't come up again for three years. So I always get a little nervous and worried. I suppose teachers of homiletics preaching would say, well, you should pick one and preach on it and don't, you know. But it t it's three years that we're going to wait for these again, and they're all good readings. So I thought I'd say something about each one of them because they might have something to do with how we understand uh, moving into this week and taking anything with us uh, from coming to the liturgy on Sunday. Uh, that's important. Uh, I may get to this. It, may, it bears on one of the things in the lessons. If you don't take the Atlantic Monthly, get the article, How to Land Your Kid in Therapy. <laughs> this is really good. It's really, really good. Not the way you think is what it'll turn out. We have three readings, Genesis, where we continue the Rebecca and Isaac story, Paul in the eighth chapter of Romans doing his usual Pauline turgid reasoning thing, and the parable of the sower in Matthew's gospel. In Genesis, last week we met Rebecca, and Rebecca now has become Isaac's wife. Isaac is Abraham's son. And like his mother, Isaac's mother, Sarah, Rebecca had a great deal of difficulty getting pregnant, conceiving. 
So it's a story that's familiar uh, to the readers of the Hebrew Bible. And uh, the nice thing about it is that this will also have a positive outcome, sort of, for Rebecca. And in the course of her pregnancy, it appears that it was somewhat difficult. And she prays to God, or she asks God a question, because she feels these twins struggling in her womb. If you read this in the Hebrew, it, the word for struggling means crashing. So they're crashing. And God says in answer to her question and sends her an oracle and says, this is just the beginning. She's wondering, can I live, th can I live through this? He said, when these kids are born, they're going to be at it, and there'll be a rivalry, and it will be something uh, noteworthy. And we will, of course, know the two children that get born are Esau and Jacob, and they're going to form two different groups, the Edomites, Esau, and the Israelites, Jacob. So what we're reading, by the way, as we're going through this part of the Green Sunday, we're reading... Uh, the sweep of the history of salvation, the great story of God's mighty acts and how we understand God's abiding presence in human history and how God's purposes are being worked out in the course of these narratives. The children are born. Esau is the oldest. And he is born, and then Jacob is born holding the heel of Esau. There's some Hebrew puns in this, reading it in the original. And they become now two entirely different individuals. Esau is an impulsive, vigorous, outdoorsy kind of guy. He's a hunter. He is his father Isaac's favorite. And Jacob it says, is a gentleman who stays in the tents. The word used for gentleman in Hebrew means morally innocent. He is going to turn out to be anything but morally innocent. And we will already begin to see in this reading corrupt motives making themselves manifest in his behavior. The story continues. They're grown now. Esau's out running around, hunting. You know, maybe he had adult attention deficit disorder. Who knows? <laughs> he just wasn't, you know, they didn't figure it out yet. He's running around. He comes into the tent. Jacob is cooking. I don't know whether there was a lot of, there were a lot of men cooking back in the ancient Near East, but maybe in that culture he was cooking. And Esau comes in and demands to be fed. He's, uh, uh, Jacob is making a stew and he wants some of it. So before he gives it Esau any, he says, you need to give me your birthright. And he said, is this any time to talk about this? I'm absolutely starving. Give me some of that red stuff. I expect it was red lentils, red lentil stew. And so Jacob said, not until you give me your birthright. 
So he said, well, okay, what do, I, what do I need the birthright for? Just give me some food. And in the original text, it says he inhaled it. Or the better translation would be he ate like an animal. So the story ends. Now, those of you who were raised on the Bible stories know that what's going to happen is that Isaac ultimately will be dying and Rebecca, Jacob was her favorite, puts hairy clothes on Jacob because Esau was an hairy man and brings him into the tent where Isaac is dying and can't see very well. His vision is feeble. So he wants to reach out and touch him. And he reaches out and touches him and he feels an hairy man and he gives him the birthright. So Jacob was a schemer and a plotter and a planner and his motives were pretty corrupt in many ways. We're going to discover that as time goes on, Jacob is a sensitive person, it appears, from what it says in the text, and he's going to have some real struggles. In fact, he's going to wrestle with God all night. That's where he'll get the name Israel. So he was thinking about this as things move forward. Why do we read this and how could we possibly make use of it? It's a story about the fact that God can work with anybody. The great matriarchs and patriarchs of Israel were, as we, some would say these days, complex. We can't just see them marching in a straight line out of their belief in the sovereignty of God, out of their desire to please God and to love God, to understand their covenantal relationship with God. They're a bunch of fickle, wayward, occasionally corrupt individuals. And God somehow takes them and begins now to create nations and to do the things that are present in the biblical promise and to affirm for all human beings that each one of us in big and small ways are part of God's plan for the cosmos. So it's about the fact that God can work with you and me. This morning at 8 o'clock, the reader of the reading from Romans started to read it and began to get into this rather tight reasoning of Paul and at one point says, Oh, yay. <laughs> I'm serious. I'm thinking 8 o'clock in the morning on a Sunday, reading chapter 8 of the epistle to the Romans. Oh, yay is right. Most of us are getting about 5% of what this is. So reading it, I'm thinking, what is Paul getting at and how might we try to appropriate that without getting into some nip-up of expository preaching about chapter 8 of Romans. And one of the things that Paul talks about again that he talked about last week and will come up more than once in Romans and other places is the flesh and the spirit. And how might we understand what that means when Paul speaks about the flesh 
and speaks about the Spirit. A lot of preachers have said over the ages that the flesh uh, that he's speaking of is the material world, our bodies, the physical creation, as opposed to the spiritual world, which is some sort of cloud cuckoo land somewhere else or some sort of invisible reality that we're all supposed to live into. It's just not true. For Paul, he would understand the flesh as body, soul, spirit, mind, not given to God in love, but given uh, to our own interests, turning ourselves in on ourselves, And I got to thinking that maybe one of the best ways to explain this would be to once again use Father Thomas Keating's understanding of the spiritual condition of human beings, which is that we engage in what he describes as irrational programs for happiness, and that they center around three energy centers, security and survival, affection and esteem, and power and control. And our inability to get those things in balance or to keep them in perspective is the source of most of our emotional, spiritual, and mental difficulties. And they are the struggles of the flesh. So the spirit, which Paul says is present to all people in Christ, is the resource that we have in some way to move away from the flesh, away from the emotional, irrational programs for happiness, and into a condition whereby we are governed and led by the Spirit, God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen us. And Father Keating would refer to that as our true self. We are not God, but our true self is God. And we know this when we can touch God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen us. And that's what Paul means when he speaks about the Spirit. He believes that you and I can live in the here and the now and not wait for some time in the future where we experience this, or get all prepared and make sure we're in a great condition in order to be in the world of the Spirit, but live in the Spirit in the present moment. And that means not just to be secure in some sense of God's saving power, but to be sure that we are cooperators with the divine initiative that has begun in us at our baptism. And so you and I can be God's people in the world and make a difference. We can do stuff that is important. And we can bring health and wholeness to our relationships. Salvation in Greek and salvation in Hebrew also mean to heal. So when you and I receive the saving of God's spirit from within... We possess the healing power of God, 
which is an internal resource that each one of us has and an external ability to bring healing and wholeness to all our relationship. So when you hear Paul speak of the spirit and the flesh, remember the spirit is your true self. Matthew and the parable of the sower. So here's a little biblical scholarship stuff. The original parable, as spoken by Jesus, is verses 1 through 9 of today's gospel. That's the parable that Jesus spoke, the historical Jesus. The rest is the interpretation of the parable is Matthew and Mark, where it came from originally. This is the reigning view of the majority of the New Testament scholars and has been for a long, 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 long time. And there has been some vindication of this view uh, when the Gospel of Thomas was discovered. Because while the Gospel of Thomas is not a canonical New Testament book, it contains this parable neat without any additions or interpretations. So it's an independent source that indicates to us that this is the, the material that Jesus spoke. So here's what we need to keep in mind. We're going to read some, hear some parables moving forward in the Green Sundays. What did Jesus mean when he spoke this parable? What was his situation on the ground? What did the church who wrote the gospel that reproduces the parable understand that to mean for them 50 or 60 years later? What was their situation on the ground? And finally, the third way is to say, does this parable have any application to my life or our lives together as a community of faith called the church? And how do we make sense of it? And what do we do with it? So, Jesus. Jesus is in a circumstance where his ministry, his earthly ministry, has stalled. It is not in a condition that the condition that he would want uh, the missionary journeys were me, uh, turned out to be mediocre in terms of their success he is meeting resistance and rejection principally by the religious leadership of his of his day and some of his uh, important followers have left him probably because he's beginning to say things that they don't agree with. And so he is speaking this parable to those disciples that are with him about how we understand God's ultimate triumph in the bringing of the kingdom of God and his sure confidence that through him that will come to be and that those who follow him will assist in this process. So he is speaking to his disciples about the full range of people who come to believe or don't. 
These processes are not ancient, they're with us still. He's describing a reality about how people come to conversion, about how some do and how some don't, about how some return, about how some persist. And in the midst of all that, he has the sure confidence of the triumph of the values of the kingdom of God, where the law of love is the operative principle in all human interaction. The interpretation, here then the parable of the sower, comes from both Mark and Matthew. And some of the material in there has to do with the pre-written tradition where Mark and Matthew know about the fact that there is beginning now to be an apparent collapse in the interest of the belief in Jesus as Messiah. They're having difficulty in terms of their success. They're engaging in a big rethink about uh, who are the people that should be hearing this message. And so in Matthew's case, we have this. Matthew, a former rabbi, a Jewish Christian, the head or one of the heads of a Jewish synagogue in 80 or 85 A.D., that has now become 80% Gentile. How do we understand this message? How do we understand the people who have come through our community and have either not stuck at all, sort of stuck and didn't last much at all, sort of... uh, understood what was going on, but the cares of the world move them away. You know, well, I'll say that in a minute. And finally, those who flourish. And probably for Matthew, the big conundrum was, how is it that the Gentiles are sticking? And how do we make sense of that? And how do the people who we thought this message was for aren't? But the sure confidence that in the persistence and perseverance and the maintenance of the interior self-regulation that all people need to have, the kingdom's values will thrive. And in both the interpretation of the parable and in the original parable as spoken by the Savior, we have an absurd accounting of what the result is going to be. 60, 40, 20% uh, yield in the harvest. The best any farmer in the ancient Near East could hope for in their harvest was 7%. Why would they say such a thing? Because they believe with sure confidence in God's unlimited abundance. And it is also a parable about the fact that life is not a zero-sum game. There is enough for everybody. And so, too, there is enough of God's saving healing power for everybody. Now, making sense of this parable for us, my own personal view is that each one of us over time goes through all of the types that he describes 
of the seeds and where they're sown. And we repeat these, this in a cyclical way. One of the difficulties or one of the affirmations of that is, of course, we live in the age of the remote. 30 seconds of the giants. 30 seconds on CNN. 30 seconds on Entertainment Tonight. 30 seconds on Suki and the Jersey Shore. 30 seconds on the Food Channel. Right? Unlimited choice. Right? Unlimited choice, my friends, means no choice. And that's the hard thing for most people to understand. How to drive your kid into therapy. Here's a pray see. This is preachable. You're going to hear about this again. The woman who's writing this article in the Atlantic Monthly says that uh, she raised a boy herself. She uh, went to graduate school to become a psychotherapist. And she learned all the stuff. And she learned that one of the things that they believed were necessary for successful parenting. You know, there was always this tension between you don't have to be an uh, excellent parent. You have to be a good enough parent. So she began to get into the, her practice. And the first five or six patients that she had were textbook. All this stuff, you know, how, you know, just writing it down. Here we go, moving from strength to strength here on this. We're being vindicated, all of this stuff. And then she saw a woman in her middle 20s or late 20s who sat down and said, you know, I had wonderful parents. They were always there for me. I love my siblings. I have a cool job. I really love my apartment. And I'm just not happy. And I don't know what's the matter with me. So she thought, well, maybe these people are kind of inflating their remembrance of their childhood and all of the things. And she said, no, they did have wonderful parents. They did do all those things. They were always there for them. The siblings were great. She did have a good apartment. All this was true. So she began to come to the conclusion that the problem is that the parenting was too good. You know, Amy Chua, the, what is it, the battle hymn of the tiger mother? You know why that struck a note? Because uh, it was aimed right at this. I don't like taking guitar lessons anymore. The young woman's parents said, that's okay, you don't have to. Amy Chua would say, nothing doing, and furthermore, guitar. You can't play the guitar, you can play either the piano or the violin, and you must choose one of those and do it. 
I'm mentioning all this because the seeds that fall on the ground and do all this stuff uh, have to do with the recurring cycle of what we understand is adequate or not adequate. And I got to thinking when I read this article, Edwin Friedman, one of my great heroes, who said, those children who are the most successful in their life are the ones whose parents have the least investment in their salvation. And that flies in the face of what most of us think and believe and feel, maybe because of our own experience, where we wished our parents were more invested in our salvation than they are or were. The irrational programs for happiness. Once we move out of that and get into the good soil, and we can do this more than once, we are nurtured by the love of God in Christ Jesus and the Spirit of God, God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen us. This week, give thanks for the reality that God can work with you, that God unconditionally loves, accepts, and forgives you, no matter what. Give thanks for the fact that you contain in internal terms and in external terms in community and through the worship of the church the ability to express the Spirit of God in the world and to move away from the false self to the true self. And finally, the gospel guarantee for today is that God's abundant healing power is available to each one of us more than we could have asked for or imagined. Amen.